Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is July 10th, and on this day in history, in 1679, the British crown claimed New Hampshire as a royal colony. On this day in 1776, a statue of King George III was pulled down in New York City. Screw King George, okay. On this day in 1890, Wyoming became the 44th state to join the United States. On this day in 1913, the highest temperature ever recorded in the U.S., 134 degrees Fahrenheit, was recorded in Death Valley, California. Get ready for many days of 134 degrees. On this day in 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was hand-delivered to the U.S. Senate by President Woodrow Wilson. On this day in 1929, the U.S. government began issuing paper money in the small size. Now that's what this says. I have no idea what it means. Were they originally giving paper money out in a big size? I don't care. On this day in 1938, Howard Hughes completed a 91-hour flight around the world. On this day in 1943, Arthur Ashe, the first African-American inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, was born. He went on to win 33 career titles. On this very day in 1947, Saab introduced the Model 92 prototype as its first automobile. On this day in 1949, the first practical rectangular television was presented. It sold for a whopping $12. Usually things get cheaper as they get older, not TVs. On this day in 1962, Fred Baldessari swam the English Channel underwater. It was a 42 miles swim and it took 18 hours. On this day, in 1969, the National League was divided up into two baseball divisions. On this day, in 1984, Dwight Doc Gooden of the New York Mets became the youngest player to appear in an All-Star game as a pitcher. He was only 19 and a half. On this day, 1985, goodbye. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But who are we kidding? Probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. Stay tuned. Oh, yeah.
Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No, but it is time for the next best thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho... It's been a week. It's been a busy week. It's been a crazy week. I feel like I say that every week because I feel like that's true every week. Before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. If at any point throughout the broadcast you hear an item you would like to discuss or feel there's a tidbit that you could contribute to the show, by all means, feel free to call in. The call-in number is 718-928-9732. Again, that's 718-928-9RFB-9732. Or if you don't want to be heard on the air because you're a little bashful, no problem, you can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Or go ahead and like us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information, links to pertinent sites, all that stuff usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash NBT radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write it's more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall. You can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something something to keep us in business if you like what you hear tonight well a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that uh if you feel so inclined you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt again that's rfb.nyc slash nbt and the last thing i'll tell you before we get on to the important cool stuff is that all episodes of the next best thing are now available on iTunes as podcasts. Holy crap, that is huge news. It actually happened weeks ago, but every time I say it, I just get a little excited because it's huge. I'm so freaking excited! If you ever miss an episode of The Next Best Thing, which, come on, let's be honest, you miss most of them, uh, you can go to the iTunes store or check the podcast app on your iPhone. Just type in the next best thing, click on our logo, which I trust you know, and there you will find literally all of the past episodes. You'll see the title so you can pick and choose which ones pique your interest or which ones just simply sound the most bearable. Listen to those, and if you have a few minutes, rate us, review us, tell a friend, tell a relative, tell an enemy, do whatever you gotta do to spread the word because the word of mouth is how we grow. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? It was for me. I'm sure it was for you, too. So, that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything... Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. Boy, we have a great show lined up for you tonight. I say that every week because, you know what? That's just the goddamn truth. Every single week, we work hard for you here at Radio Free Brooklyn. I work hard for you right here on The Next Best Thing. I hope everyone had an awesome 4th of July... 
I really thought to myself, surely these people on my block have to run out of fireworks sometime, but no, they still haven't. We're sitting here on July 10th, and I swear to God, I'm still hearing firecrackers go off randomly throughout the night and sometimes throughout the day. It is just delightful. I wish that would stop immediately. How was your 4th of July? Did you go to Fire Island or the Hamptons or somewhere else. Call in, tell us all about it, because no one cares about anything else but your vacation. Tonight, we have a very special guest, and we are going to be speaking with Cam Perrin. He's been featured on HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumbel twice. Yeah, holy sweet mother of God, I did say twice, because that's true. He's been on that show twice, and he's been featured for the work he does with and for the players of the Negro Leagues and the various museums and organizations with which they are now involved and affiliated. I believe Cam is 22 years old. He's from Boston. He now lives in California. And his the work he's been doing is truly inspiring. And the reason it really jumped out to me and why I felt compelled to reach out to him and have a chance to talk with him is because the over kind of like the real underlying theme to his whole story was the relationships that he's been able to build with these former players. Naturally, the people, anyone who played in the Negro Leagues, if they're still alive, then they're naturally up there in age. Uh, And so if they're, you know, and a lot of these guys were not, the Negro Leagues were basically, they only existed because Major League Baseball was segregated, just like most of America was back in those days. And so they created their own baseball league, and it was the third most, the third biggest black corporation. It employed the third most black people in the whole country at that time. There were two other black businesses that had more employees. One was a cosmetics company. And another was something else. But the Negro Baseball Leagues were huge in America. And they were, I mean, it was huge. And the history is so rich and important. And it's important that we keep it, you know, we give it the respect and deferential treatment that it deserves. And frankly, I never see Cam through his work has gotten to reach out and build relationships with a number of former players. I never got to do that. I never, well, I never did that. I should say, but I did grow up in Kansas City where the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, the official museum, that's where it is. And so I actually saw firsthand the hard work and fight that went into creating that museum, building it up, making it what it is today, very well established. And one of the pioneers in that project was a man named Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill is a legend in Kansas City, very famous, and really in baseball, as he should be. He was, he played in the Negro Leagues for a long time. He was an excellent first baseman. He then became a manager of the Kansas City Monarchs. He won a Negro Leagues World Series with the Kansas City Monarchs. He became the first black coach in the major leagues when he was hired by the Cubs. He spent many years as a scout with the Cubs and then the Kansas City Royals. He basically created the Negro Leagues Museum, and he fought long and hard to get black players inducted into the Cooperstown Official Baseball Hall of Fame. And he was one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And I want to talk um, with Cam a little bit about him, because one of the things that Cam said in the segment with Brian Gummel was that what attracted him to these players and to this league was the fact that they were all underdogs. They had all been kind of 
you know, they weren't getting the recognition or the esteem and respect that they deserved. They were totally underdogs, and their playing careers had been kind of kicked to the wayside. No one really talked about them. There wasn't a lot of documentation about their careers, and so he felt that they were being dealt an injustice, and he took some action to remedy that. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I feel that there's been an injustice done against Buck O'Neill, a hero of mine, and um, and I would like to talk with Cam about it, see what he thinks. I I first met Buck O'Neill when I was in fifth grade at a personal hero convention. That was something that my school district did for every fifth grade class. All the fifth grade classes in the district came together on one day to celebrate their personal heroes. And our keynote speaker that particular year was Buck O'Neill. And he gave an inspiring speech and I had been selected to read my essay. So I got to meet him as well. That was the first time I met him. I met him a number of times. The last time I spoke to him was the summer before I went to college in 2006. I can tell you folks, when he was turned away by the Hall of Fame, it was it was so <laughs> devastating. I mean, it was a city in mourning. Our hearts were broken for him because he was such a beacon of goodness and hope and inspiring to people. He worked tirelessly up until the day he died. The way he handled the rejection is something that to this day I still look at and think to myself, how in the world... like. It's just, it's truly remarkable. The grace, the graciousness is something that we should all aspire to. And I don't know if I can live up to personally, but we'll get to that a little later. All right. We're going to bring in our guest right now, calling in from California. He is the one and only Cam Perrin. Cam, thanks for staying up. Well, I guess you're not, it's actually not that late where you are, is it? No, it's almost 7.30. Okay. Okay. Well, so yeah, you're not making much of a sleep sacrifice, but we still appreciate you making the time. Um, can you Can you kind of explain to people, so from the segments on HBO, we saw that your interest in the Negro Leagues and the men who played in it began when you were just a kid growing up in Boston collecting baseball cards, but do you remember specifically what it was you found or heard or something that sparked your interest? Yeah, so a friend of mine had introduced me to writing letters through the mail in seventh grade. And one of the players he had actually written to was Buck O'Neill. But anyway, so he told me about this website where you could log in, you could see all these addresses of former baseball players, you could write them a letter and send them a few baseball cards with a self-addressed stamped envelope. And within a few weeks, they'd sign them and send them back. So I did that. I wrote to hundreds of former major league baseball players, mostly from the forties, fifties and sixties guys like Duke Snyder, Bob Feller, George Kell, Bobby Doerr. And it was great getting their autographs back and corresponding with them, but there wasn't really much to it. And then, um, I believe the Allen and Ginter tops baseball card set came out sometime around 2007. They included a few Negro league baseball players that along with just my interest in baseball history kind of growing at the same time, I decided to write a few letters to them. And rather than just having them sign my cards, these guys would write back long handwritten letters, sometimes two or three pages long. And that just really did it for me. And I started writing to more and more Negro League players, many of whom didn't have baseball cards or were not in this top set. And it just kind of took off from there. So speaking of which, okay, so you're from Boston. I assume you're a Red Sox fan? Yes, yes. Nice. And you played baseball, I know, because in some of your letters, you actually mentioned it. Uh, when did you, now how did you, so you said that there was like an 
a book or something that actually had the addresses. That was going to be one of my questions because you're right. Not a lot of these, the Negro Leaguers had much, I mean, they didn't have many baseball cards. They didn't have a lot of information about their careers. So I figured finding them probably would have been difficult, but there was actually a, like a list of all of their stuff. Yeah, so there's this website called sportscollectors.net, and they had a free membership at the time and a paid membership of like $15 a year. And there were about maybe 100 to 150 addresses of living players um, that they had logged on their website that had just kind of come from different collectors around the country who had written letters and kind of gotten these addresses compiled. And in addition to that, they had, you know, thousands of former major league baseball players addresses on there as well. But yeah, so I started with those and it quickly just kind of got to this standstill point where I had kind of written to all the players um, that were known. Right. Well, when you, so you said that they would send you autographs, but you, I think probably what made you different than most of the people who wrote to them were that you would often include old programs, newspaper articles, photos, and other things important to documenting, documenting their careers and probably stuff they didn't have and that they would want to have. And, um, exactly. And how did you, what made you think to do that? So in some of my, some of my early letters when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I would write to these guys and they would write me a letter back asking me for information. Um, questions like, Hey, do you know if any of my former teammates are alive? Have you seen any photos of me? I don't have any photos. Sometimes I would ask the guys, Hey, some of these other baseball players that I wrote to sent me baseball cards. Do you have any baseball cards? And they'd say, you know, no, I, unfortunately I don't even have a picture of me in my Negro league uniform. Wow. So after hearing this dozens and dozens of times, I, I realized something clicked in my head. Well, shoot, I need to go out and find the, find this stuff for these guys. It's got to, something's got to exist. And that's when I kind of turned to these newspaper archives and scouring the internet for vintage programs. And maybe inside of that program, there might be a, a picture of the player. And once I started kind of going through these things, I started finding pictures and finding newspaper articles. And if you were a baseball player in the Negro League and you were playing a game on a Saturday afternoon in North Carolina, well, by Sunday morning, you were probably 10 hours away in a different city about to suit up and play your next game. So many of these guys never saw these things. Right. And I started just sending them copies. Dang. So you were writing a lot of people, and eventually you you came to a standstill. Now, at that point, you started reaching out through the phone, right? Yeah, so... Part of it was just me blindly kind of calling people and and stuff like that. And part of it was some of the players who I had already been corresponding with um, okay. via mail had put in their phone numbers or I had put in my phone number in the letter and said, hey, you know, like, let's just talk on the phone instead of writing letters back and forth. Wow. That is that's awesome. And then they actually. So wait, but so for the ones who you hadn't been corresponding with, how would those calls typically play play out? Like, how would you introduce yourself over the phone? Hey, uh, is this so-and-so? My name is Cam. I'm a 13-year-old Negro League baseball fan and researcher. Um, do, you, do you have a moment of your time? Um, would you mind talking to me about your baseball career? I'd love to you know, just kind of hear a few of your stories. It was awkward. I, <laughs> obviously, my voice wasn't this deep at the, at the time. I was in middle school and then high school. Um, I really just said whatever I could to get the guy on the phone. But Well, the reason I ask is because you told Brian Gumbel that not all players were happy or receptive to hear from you. Now, how, no. what would they and say? I would say? I would say that 
a lot of the guys that I called up on the phone initially were the guys that had not responded through the mail. So I called them up and figured, hey, maybe if I talked to them on the phone, I could kind of get them to sign my baseball through the mail because they hadn't signed one when I sent it to them before I called them. So with those guys, well, the reason they didn't send it back was because they didn't really want to be bothered. Um, They didn't want to talk about their baseball career. It was a part of their past that they didn't really want to look back on. Why do you think that was? um, First thing, obviously, conditions. The conditions on the road um, combined with the racism and the kind of, you know, the climate of America at that time was not very pleasant. A lot of these guys had dreams of making the major leagues, and because of those circumstances, maybe played a year or two in the minor leagues and their career got cut short because there just was no room for them or whatnot. So a lot of these guys just kind of look back on that and they, 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 they don't have the best experiences. It really just wasn't something that they want to look back and, and think about. Huh, yeah, no, I mean, that makes total sense. I guess I was just thinking of the idea that because so many of them rightfully want for people to remember that they played period the end like they just want you know they did play it was important to them and everyone wants recognition for what they've accomplished or whatever and so i thought figured maybe just hearing from someone who cared enough would be exciting but now that you mentioned it yeah i guess that does make total sense it was probably not the best treatment but you did mention that you wouldn't take no from an answer no for an answer from those guys so how would you, I mean, that's some moxie. How, how would you go about winning them over and convincing them to communicate or sign a ball when they were reluctant to, to talk in the beginning? Well, the biggest thing that I noticed was name dropping their former teammates. And if I had approval from one of their former teammates or I could get them in touch with one of their former teammates, I had then done something for them. Mm. So it was, more, it was a lot more than just me asking for a signature or me asking for something from them without giving them something in return. Smart. So when I called a guy up and said, hey, you know, I'd love if you could sign a baseball for my collection, at first he might say, absolutely not. Like, I want $50 to sign, my base, sign your baseball. Um, and then when I said, hey, man, look, like, it's not, just all, it's not just about the autograph. I've actually been corresponding with your teammates for years. Have you spoken with so-and-so? And they'd say, hey, no, not at all. I haven't heard from him since 1954. And I'd say, hey, well, here's his phone number. Call him up. Uh, he'd love to speak with you. And then I'd call back two hours later, and he was still on the phone with that guy. Wow. And things like that kind of really loosened these guys up. They saw me as, as more of um, someone that wanted to help them and, and look out for them. And then I would send them newspaper articles. I started making baseball cards up on my computer. And especially with some of the more non-receptive guys, these actions really kind of stood out to them and loosened them up. Were you nervous to call them the first time? <laughs> Sometimes, maybe <laughs> right in the beginning. Um, but I quickly got used to just calling number after number. And, you know, as they say in baseball, somebody that that hits three out of, out of every ten is a Hall of Famer. So in my case, if... Uh, if I finally got through after several times, then I was winning. Were there any that you could not convince that were just, they wanted nothing to do with it? Um, I mean, there, there was, there, there have been two or three guys that stand out that just wanted absolutely no part in it. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, well, initially, I mean, you mentioned that once they realized you were, you really did care. It wasn't just about the autograph and you actually 
were trying to help them. Well, the help really kind of took went to another level at one point because initially you just felt like most of these guys hadn't gotten the respect and recognition they deserve, but it ended up being much more than that. I mean, Major League Baseball currently offers a penchant to former Negro Leaguers who can prove participation in at least four seasons of play, which is not easy to do. How did you come to that realization? Like, how did that, how was that brought to your attention that Major League Baseball even did that? So after corresponding with these players for about two and a half years or so, I finally got to the point where I was finding new baseball players, player, Negro League players that I knew I was the only person in the country that had interviewed them about their career or knew that they were alive, you know, in addition to like relatives and mm -hmm. close friends and family. So when I started to find some of these new players, um, I called up, I blindly just called up this guy, Dr. Leighton Ravel, who was a well-known Negro League baseball researcher. If you Google Negro League baseball research, like he's quoted in all the articles. He is, you know, the go-to guy when it comes to this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I called him up and at first he thought I was doing a school project or something. And I said, no, look, like I've been researching Negro League players. I've been talking to these guys on the phone for several years now. And I got to this point where I figured I just got to call this guy. Like he needs to know what's going on here. And we quickly started talking on the phone, you know, a few times a week. And that turned into daily, sometimes two or three times a day. I had really kind of like relit this light um, in terms of his research and his involvement. And I was just kind of fueling this fire and we would call each other up and just bounce ideas back, um, back and forth. We would talk about different players, players we were looking for, different stories we had heard. And this relationship kind of started. And after some time, he kind of, you know, told me about this program that Major League Baseball offered where if you could find four years of evidence, um, which in this case would be primary source documents, newspaper articles, um, or programs from that era that mentioned the player, and you could find four years worth of these things, then the player could get a pension. And our first one that came about was this guy by the name of Paul Jones, who had written a letter to Major League Baseball and Dr. Ravel and said, hey, you know, I I'd, I'd think I have I played at least four years. I'd like to get a pension. And Dr. Ravel kind of assigned me to this project. He said, hey, Cam, I, I have three years on this guy. Can you try to find a fourth? And in this case, finding a fourth meant looking through old newspaper articles to try to find a guy named Paul Jones, a pitcher, who had played on the Cleveland Buckeyes and the Detroit Stars and Memphis Red Sox. So I went through hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles, and finally I found a, a Jones as a pitcher in the box score in one of, on one of these years, and that was the fourth year. And uh, a few weeks later, this guy gets a huge check in the mail, and wow. it just all started rolling from there. Now, that's not, you can't just do that by Googling. You know, like, so how, you had to go to the library, LexisNexis, right? I mean, how would you, how, what would you go about finding something like that? I never stepped foot in a library for the purpose of Negro League baseball research. I just, <laughs> I don't do libraries. Um, but what I did do is go through newspaper archive websites online. Okay. There are several websites that you can pay a monthly fee for. Some are only offered through like colleges that have memberships. In that case, I would find like a random college account on a computer and I'd log in using that. Um, you'd, you'd be surprised what you can find online. And I would log on to these newspaper databases and I would, I would search keywords. 
So in this case, I would, you know, type in Memphis Red Sox and then narrow it down to a certain grouping of years, let's say like 1954 to 1957, which is when I thought he may have played for them. And I would just open up each article and go through it and see what I could find. Wow. And yeah, it just kind of took off from there. About how many players would you say have you been able to help get pensions? Um, between me and Dr. Ravel just kind of working together, I'd say well over a dozen, maybe a few more than that, maybe like 15-ish. Some have been easier than others. Um, some of them just really easy. I can just type in a player's name in a newspaper archive website and just easily pull up four or five years of of articles. And in that case, they just didn't really know about the program. Right. And we had just kind of overlooked it and we wow. can quickly just get them a pension. And in other cases, we may have not known the player was alive and then they just turn up and mm -hmm. we can get them one. Or we had, we had several years already on file and then we finally find the fourth year. Wow. I mean, so there were, so there were ne former Negro League players who didn't even know this program existed and then suddenly they get... Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And that probably made a huge... I mean, anytime you get a check in the mail... It's exciting and can make a huge difference. That's unbelievable. So it probably Absolutely. Really Especially when it's six figures. Right. That's unbelievable. How did Real Sports hear about you and what you guys were doing and then contact you and decide to do a feature of your work? Yeah, so I think it all started with my school newspaper. I was in high school and, you know, the school newspaper did something like my freshman year. And then that led into the, to the hometown paper doing something. Then the Boston Globe and then... MLB.com did an article, and when I was in high school, a freshman, sophomore, junior year of high school, it really started to kind of pick up steam. I was getting all these awards and doing speaking engagements. I was I was cutting school to do speaking engagements at other schools. In high school? Um, in high school. Wow. So it all kind of picked up steam, and MLB.com ended up doing a second article, and all this stuff kind of came to be. And then at one point... Um, going into my, or towards the end of my freshman year of college, HBO reached out to me and, and heard about the story either through the Boston Globe or through MLB.com or something, and, and how, they, they expressed interest. How did you yeah. react? Do you watch real? Did you watch real sports before then? Yes, I I do. That's one of it was one of my favorite shows. I was I was blown away. I was I'd never expected it. Um, but yeah, I was down and we, we started. Well, yeah, I can't imagine being like, no, let me think about it. And they've done two. Like, did you, did they, did they tell you at the end of the first one, like, Hey, this might be something we want to follow up on in a few years or was that unexpected as well? Um, I don't know if they said that. I'm really not sure, but I think everyone kind of realized that all the stuff that had kind of taken place after the first one that there definitely should have been a second one and then they reached back out to me a few months ago and we went and did that right well and i i remember seeing the first one and and then i yeah and i saw the second one and i have to say you know um just having grown up in kansas city i was a little uh surprised when neither segment mentioned the official negro league baseball museum in kansas city have now have you ever been there or have you do you do any work with them at all or yeah i know dr level or revel revel yeah. oh revel got it um he i know that does he work with them at all like what do you guys have any affiliation at all i have been to the museum i went once when i was in kansas city my um ex-girlfriend used to live there so i i did go and i got a tour from bob the um 
mm-hmm. the head of the museum. Right. Um, I would not say that we've really done much work with the museum. Dr. Avell um, has his own Negro League uh, 501c3 organization, the Center for Negro League Baseball Research. And we just we kind of have different goals and uh, in terms of research and finding documents and working with pension programs and organizing reunions for former players. So we haven't really crossed paths all that much well, let's, um, with that. I want to I want to dig into this just a little bit. So because I found it really interesting because when I was kind of doing some prep for this and I would look at both because I, I yeah I came across the Negro Southern League Museum and they they're both there's just no mention of each other. And I had to wonder, like, are these guys adversaries? Like, do you get that vibe at all? Um, I wouldn't say that. Any any establishment that promotes the Negro League and draws attention to it and recognizes the players in whatever way possible is definitely good. Um, the Negro League spanned for multiple decades, um, mm-hmm. included thousands and thousands of players and covered all around the United States. So I think it's something that's definitely deserving of multiple museums. You know, obviously, the museum in Kansas City um, talks a lot about the Kansas City Monarchs history, the, the creation of the Negro League um, in 1920 with Rube Foster, mm-hmm. and the Negro Southern League Museum in Birmingham um, talks a lot about the Negro League teams in the South, the Negro Southern League, the Birmingham Baron, Birmingham Black Barons, and the Industrial League in Birmingham and, and that city's um, particular history. So they, they do obviously focus on the Negro League, both of them, but they do kind of take different approaches. Mm-hmm. So they well, both, good. you know, I, I love them both. <laughs> well, good. No, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think that it was, it did span the country. If there could be regional museums everywhere, that'd be great. I just wasn't sure because I know that the, I think the Southern one opened probably like, what, two years ago? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so it was just a new, I think it was the first new museum that I had heard of. And so I just wasn't sure like, huh, you know, like, is this something I just wasn't sure if there was an adversary relationship. I'm glad there's not. I did read an article in which I think Bob, Bob Kendrick, he's the president of the Negro leagues museum in Kansas city. He mentioned that they were a little concerned at first that um, just kind of diverting attention. Cause they, cause honestly, like they go through spurts of financial struggle because in any museum, you know, it's funded by the public and what they can raise. Um, and so he just mentioned like diverting attention was a concern at first, but they had talked about it and they were in a great place right now. So I think that's, that's awesome. If they can, you know, any type of, I think you're right, spreading awareness, spreading the rich history. I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and just because the Negro Southern League Museum is only two years old, um, the history of the idea of there being a Negro League in, Museum in Birmingham goes back almost 15 years. So it was something that had been, you know, has been talked about for, for well over a decade now. The players in Birmingham, the former players, have been extremely active in, in trying to bring the museum there. Several mayors had been involved. There had been several kind of pushbacks and reasons why it didn't happen earlier. And finally, after you know, years and years, it finally kind of came to be. Right. Well, no, and I think that's because, yeah, the pushbacks, the struggle, the fight, I think that's, if anything, that's the reason that all these museums should really band together and support each other. Because there are, I mean, anytime you're doing a public interest organization like that, it's tough and you need all the support you can get. But anyway, one of the things that really drew me to your story was the relationships you've been able to build with some of these old players and the incredibly 
meaningful impact that you've made by helping them get not not just with the respect and recognition which is hugely important i mean like i can't imagine having played professional sport of any kind if you do if you do reach the professional level it's obviously very important to you and you work very hard at it and then to just get completely forgotten like i that just must be very crushing but to get you know to be recognized to get the respect means has to mean so much to them and then also the pension and the money that they're you know entitled to obviously means a lot and um and i mentioned to you that yeah the i did get to know buck o'neill a little bit and he um you know he meant a great deal to me he meant a great deal to kansas city he played with for the monarchs was their manager was the first black coach and all that stuff and then in he fought really hard for Negro leaguers to be in, included and um, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And then in 2001, they agreed to form a committee to do research on the candidates. They took the vote. It was just, it was weird to me that they did, they decided to do one vote. You were either in or out, and that was it for all time. And um, yeah, he didn't, you know, he was one vote short, and it kind of was crushing. But the way he handled it was. I, I really can't even describe like the way that he handled it. And it kind of makes me think of all these Negro leaguers that you've, that you've kind of uncovered the treatment they went through and the things that they had to deal with and the way that their spirits are still up. Most of them. Um, it's really like unbelievable. Wouldn't you say? I would say that I think with, I think the reason that is with a lot of these guys, maybe with Buck as well is you go, the majority of your life, maybe into your late seventies, your early eighties, late eighties, whatnot. And no one mentions this. No one mentions this part of your career. It's kind of something that you talk about in passing, but never really get into much depth about. And finally, um, that light, you know, goes back on and, and you start talking about your career. You get invited to a reunion, you start doing events. So with a lot of these guys, I think they had kind of told themselves, um, that they, they could never really expect much of this. And then all of this stuff that's kind of coming to them now is just kind of bonus that they never really thought would ever happen. But it means a lot to them. I mean, the yeah. guys, there were guys yeah. on, your, on the real sports who, you know, it meant so much to them, and you could just tell. And um, I do want to play just a few clips from uh, Buck's final interview. It was with Keith Olbermann. This is when he was on MSNBC, but it was just months before he passed away and just so people can hear kind of how he handled it and the grace, graciousness, and it's unbelievable. Here he is uh, on Keith Olbermann's show. I'm a little disappointed that I didn't get in. I feel that I could be in Cooperstown. I think I put the numbers down. I put the numbers up that, that would lead you into the Hall of Fame. But I think, you know, with me, my greatest accomplishment might have been starting the Negro League Baseball Museum here in Kansas City, which tells that story. Uh-huh. And that's really what it is also all about, don't you think? Like, spreading this, keeping the history alive and telling that story of, of the Negro Leagues. I mean, it was a huge part of American history. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So through your HBO segments and whatnot, you were contacted by someone in California about being potentially being an agent now is that something you had really thought about much before you heard from this guy 
I didn't even think about this until two and a half years after I met this guy. You want me to kind of back up and start sure. from the yeah, beginning yeah, yeah. on how we met? I'd be happy to. Yeah, well, and just so people know what we're talking about, you now work at William Morris Endeavor, which is, I mean, one of the two, I mean, besides creative artists, it's one of the two main talent agencies in the country. Um, so, yeah, so tell yeah, us. Yeah, you could say that. So, yeah. Yeah, so let's so go, go ahead and tell people how did that come about. So after the initial Real Sports segment aired, I was contacted by hundreds of people um, on Facebook, over email, all sorts of ways, letters, which was kind of funny because, you know, I was the guy writing letters <laughs> right. and now I was getting letters. Um, many of these people were just thanking me for the work I've done. Many were interested, some of which have been coming to the reunions for the last six years now because they hit me up and, and they became part of the family. But one of the guys who had contacted me was a guy named Gene, who was a television writer on the show Bones and Community and several other TV shows. And he said, hey, Cam, um, my name's Gene. I'm a TV writer based in Los Angeles. I love the story. I think we have potential to maybe turn this into some sort of feature film project. I'd love to catch up with you and maybe see if we can do something. And... This, this was going into my sophomore year of college about a month or so after the, the initial segment aired. So his initial and, contact to you, so that I, for some reason I was under the impression that his initial contact with you was thinking, hey, you know, all this work you've done, this kind of, you know, finding people and getting them what they deserve and all this stuff, you know, hey, have you ever wanted to be an agent? But his initial contact was actually about a feature film? Yes. Oh, okay. So I... I responded to him something along the lines of, yeah, dude, sounds cool. Would love to talk. Not realizing like what this means at all. You're you like, know? sure. I'm, yeah, whatever. I'm a sophomore in college at the time. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, <laughs> so okay. we, so we start chatting through Facebook. I think a few weeks after our initial um, communications, hopped on the phone, chatted on the phone for like 30, 40 minutes. And he was really busy at the time. I was really busy as well um, in college. And over the next two years, two or two and a half years, we just chatted on and off every few months, um, had a few phone calls here and there. And finally, we got to the point where he was kind of clearing up with a project he was working on. And, and I was kind of wrapping up with school and approaching my, my final semester. And he said, hey, you know, I'd love to finally, you know, to, to get, a, get the chance to meet you, bring you out to L.A. and, and maybe like get started on this project. So come April um, 2016, I'm a, I'm a senior in college, about to graduate. He brings me out to Los Angeles um, during my spring break. And with the sole goal of just like kind of trying to get to know me, um, hearing all of my stories. I mean, I've got stories for days just from what these guys have told me over the years and the guys that I've found and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So the first day I'm there in L.A. with him, we're on the set of Bones where he works as a writer and we're just kind of talking, getting to know each other. He's picking my brain. And after about a, an hour or two, he says, Hey, you know, what do you want to do after college? And at the time I had taken a few interviews with different businesses what, that, what did you study I, in college? I studied business management. Okay. So in addition to my Negro league research, I've just, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've had all sorts of little side hustles and things that I've done. I've never really worked for anyone else until my current job. And where did you so, go? Where did you study? I, 
I went to Tulane University in New Orleans. Okay, so you were okay. So you hadn't really sought out Hollywood. No, so never. What was never. your like? Had you even? What was your kind of five-year plan, if you will, if you have one of those in college? Five-year shoot. I don't think I had a two-month plan. <laughs> well, I just mean like, what was your kind of? What was your goal? What did you want to do after college? I didn't know. I had no idea. I still don't know. Um, <laughs> well, that's good. But. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've I've always kind of been an entrepreneurial type guy and had like a really kind of business mind. So I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go. I had taken a few jobs with different companies. One was a bank where, you know, looking back, I think, why would I ever want to work at a bank even mm-hmm. if I was, you know, doing this or that? I So so anyway, yeah. so I told him that and he either one of us mentioned the agent thing. I think it was him. He said, Cam, you know, have you ever thought about being an agent? I said, well, maybe um, it's kind of crossed my mind uh, once or twice, the work that I've done with these players and kind of like how I have my own agent roster, which the roster being all these players that I regularly kind of communicate with. Maybe I, you know, maybe I would be a decent fit. So he said, hold on, hold on, calls his agent up um, at WME. And a few hours later, we're walking in the doors of, of William Morris in Beverly Hills. And that was my first time in Beverly Hills. That was my first day in Los Angeles. And, uh, this was on spring break. This was on spring break. <laughs> wow. And I try to tell my friends, like, you know, this, this TV writer flew me out to Los Angeles and put me up in an Airbnb and I'm going to meet with him about a movie and no I, one really got it. And well, I didn't, I didn't even under understand really well, all that it entailed. To be honest, if I were to if I were to hear this story from like a friend of mine, it would sound like a like a potential skeezy scam. I mean, you know, like who knows? I mean, but you had verified that he was a writer. You knew who he was. Plus, he had contacted you because of the segment. But you yeah, know, anyone I mean, could be like, I, I can find I can find a lot of information on the computer. Sure, and exactly. I did my good, good, good. I did my due diligence, and the dude was the real deal. Well, because I can tell you, people who are trying to get into. Hollywood or the performing industry, if they hear from anybody, oh, yeah, you know, I once wrote a commercial in 1983 and I have these contacts, come on down, stay with me. You know, that that can happen. But all right, I'm glad that didn't happen here. So you go to William Morris. And I'm, I'm sure if I told this story to somebody sitting next to me at a bar, they'd probably, they'd probably think I was a little bit cuckoo at first because it all sounds a little bit too good to be true. Well, so we, anyway, so we go, we go in there, me, Gene, and his agent, his, his television agent, and we just start talking. She's familiar with his vision for this story, which at the time was still like an early vision. Mm-hmm. And she says, hey, before you leave California, take an interview. I don't know if this is something you want to do or not, but it doesn't hurt. This is one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. Um, just, just try it out. You have nothing to lose. So I'm supposed to fly back on Sunday. That day was the Thursday. The following day was Good Friday. So school starts on Monday. So they tell me like about 30 minutes after I walk out, they, they call me and say, Hey, can you, can you come in Monday morning? So I'm like, okay, sure. Well, my flight out was Sunday. So I changed my, we changed my flight. Me and Gene changed my flight. And over the next few days, I try to scrap together some nice clothes because all I had was shorts, jeans, and t-shirts. And here I was about to go in for a job interview at this big agency where everyone wears suits. So I, we go over to his friend's house. I get like a button down. I get like some khakis. And I look halfway decent, but still not, no, no suit. Whatever. Go in there Monday morning and I meet with, with, um, HR and five minutes in 
guy recognizes me from the first Real Sports episode, and we start chatting about baseball, and he says, hey, you know, if you want to work here, let me know when you want to start. What? And, uh, two days wait a minute, later, wait, 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 wait. two he, days later, I said, yeah. You didn't even, he didn't talk to you first? I, we, we talked, we Chatted. talked. Um, yeah, but. Wow. No, I, I was in the door, and getting in the door is the hardest part to do at most places. True, so. very true. Okay, so now, can, what, what's your current position there? Um, I'm currently an assistant in the speakers division. We book speaking engagements for clients of ours. And do you? Are, how are you liking it? It's it's interesting. Um, a lot of things that I'm learning. Obviously, it's it's kind of like Hollywood grad school is what they say about the assistant job mm-hmm. um, at a talent agency. Um, hours are a little bit longer than the standard job, but I'm also learning a lot more and have a lot more responsibilities than the normal job. So. It's it's cool for now, and we'll we'll see where it takes me. Do you uh, could you see yourself like you see you're like you're an assistant, so you're an assistant to somebody. You see what they do. Is that something that you would maybe could see yourself doing? You know? Um, potentially, potentially. As I said earlier, I I don't have a five year plan really, um, um. So I don't really know yet, but it's definitely something that I'm considering. And as time goes on and different opportunities um, come up. Whether they're in the company or, or or outside of the company, we'll we'll see what happens. So I'm, what, I'm one of those people that just kind of goes with it. So what's the status of your film, uh, the film project? Yeah, so the film project we're currently working on that. Um, Gene is still kind of writing it, putting it all together. Um, yeah, so we're kind of at he's at like the outlining kind of stages of before he starts, you know, digging into the script. And if you had some casting control, or do you, so wait, so before he actually gave you this interview uh, contact stuff, you guys were meeting up to kind of talk about this project. So how involved are you on the kind of the development of the film? Yeah, so he, to, to get to a point like this where you're writing a film about a particular person, you have to, you know, make a life rights agreement. So me and, and Gene and through, through the company, I have... Um, We've we've done a life rights agreement where he's um, kind of purchased the story, um, which is highly dependent on whether it actually gets to a production stage or not. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, so um, what what else were you asking? So it's do you have any say in like? Uh, oh yeah, you do. You have say in like casting? Um, yeah, not not in casting though. That obviously. Um, <laughs> People are in charge of casting, sure. and that's their specialty. So that's up to them. It's obviously that that stage is is quite Later. some time away. But if you could choose, um, who would you pick to play you? To play me, I don't. I don't know. I, I tell this to everybody, and they think I'm crazy. But yeah. you know, when I started doing this, I was just some long haired, scrappy looking twelve year old kid. So whoever that kid is right now, maybe he hasn't even started acting. Oh yet. No. God, I didn't even. Th- I forgot about that. I was thinking. So yeah, yeah so the story's going to revolve around your early days as a researcher okay well yeah, yeah. i would say so it probably maybe not be. 12 years old but maybe like 14 15 when i'm really kind of really kind of going i mean when i was in high school i would get all my homework done um in school and then when i'd get home you know you'd write letters 25 i was doing negro league research from 225 to 11 o'clock at night so that that was my period when i had the most time to kind of focus on this stuff. So let me ask this. So, and I'm, I'm still very involved, but right. not at that level. So when you were doing that, I mean, you said you would go on speaking engagements in high school and whatnot, and you were spending so much time doing that. 
how would you was it purely a you know passion project or were you i know for speaking engagements you probably were paid but could you have could you have pursued that full-time do you think as a living no and, and i wouldn't and i wouldn't um one thing that dr ravel um my fellow research colleague has kind of shown me and and told me over the years is you obviously the negro league baseball and whatever you're doing um is is a hobby it's a passion whatever it may be for us but it's not a career this is it's not something that i would want to do full-time um you know i've I've had other interests in business that i've really kind of like to focus on um and now my current job so it's not something that i I would pursue full-time okay do you think um now that you're in Hollywood and you're, you know, you have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, have you, and you don't even have to tell us what they are, but have you kind of been floating around any ideas of potential new endeavors you could take on? Maybe a, you know, production company, who knows, anything like that? Um, I still don't know all that much about movies and how they're made and all the process behind all that, um, considering I work in the speaking department now. True. But, you know, I've, I've thought about, like, little documentaries. Obviously, the Negro League stuff, there's such a rich history that, for the most part, has not really been documented. Many of these players have not been videoed or interviewed and, and um, kind of explored. So, I don't know. I, I see myself maybe working on some sort of kind of passion project documentary of some sorts in the future, but... I have no no idea when I would start or when I'd finish or what. So well, that's, we'll see. That's cool. Now, what are your how do your parents feel about all this? Have they um, not parent not just parents, but your siblings all that stuff? Have they as after the segment aired and stuff, and your life kind of changed? Were they just along for the ride, or are they excited about it? How did they? How did your parents feel about you doing all this research and stuff in high school? Were they kind of like, well, shouldn't you be doing anything else? Yeah, a little. At, at first, it was obviously, um, yeah, they did think that way. Like, you know, why why are you spending so much time doing this? Like, it's Friday night, and like the last three Friday nights, you stayed up all night doing this. Like, you've been on the phone for five hours today. Like, maybe you should just get off the phone and like, you know, go over a friend's house. But uh, yeah, so they were they were definitely a little bit hesitant at first and kind of unsure what sucked me in, but everyone's kind of come to appreciate it and, and love it. And everyone, friends, family, uh, whatnot, have really been kind of invested in the different turns that the story has taken over the years, um, you know, through high school into college, um, into where I am now and all the different kind of things that come up along the way. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. Well, do you do have siblings, right? Yes, I do. Are they fan- base- baseball fans? Uh, no, no, not at all. Okay, well, they're fans of you. <laughs> they like your work, I assume. Uh, well, that's that's really cool. I hope that, um, well, we'll all stay very uh, much engaged and see how this film project comes along. Uh, keep us posted. And, uh, ho- yeah, keep up the good work. I hope to make it out to uh, Birmingham sometime and see that museum. It's not, it looks really awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I feel so invested because um, I was there kind of from the beginning to when it was finally built. And that's where you guys hold uh, reunions every year, don't you? Yes, we do. We have one reunion a year, usually around Memorial Day week. Nice. And you and Dr. Uh, Ravel plan those? Yes, Dr. Ravel and Chef Clayton Sherrard, who's um, 
a local um, of Birmingham, Alabama, a former bat boy of the Birmingham Black Barons Negro League team. The two of them, um, they kind of help with the funding and putting together a lot of the logistical stuff. And I kind of go through my player roster um, and kind of do the pushing to, to get all the guys to show up. Oh, nice. So it's, it's a teamwork of all three of us. Um, and then the museum has kind of been funded by the city of Birmingham. So they're also on board as well with the museum. Nice. Well, check that out. And also you have a Facebook page, Cam Perrin's uh, Negro League page, which is facebook.com slash Negro League Baseball Updates, right? Yes. Awesome. So people should like that, follow that. And what's your Twitter handle so people can follow you there too? Uh, my Twitter handle is thecam111, T-H-E-C-A-M-111. I really only just retweet um, different things that people post about the Negro League and, and what I'm doing. So definitely recommend going on Facebook. I post different articles and um, updates on players that have passed away or players that I've located and reunion pictures and it, interviews that we do. And didn't you write a eulogy? Did you, did you give a eulogy? I wrote one, and I have to write another one tonight, actually. Oh, you're so, kidding. Wow. Are yeah. You, who, is it for someone else to give, or is it? Yeah, it's, it's more just like something that was read at a funeral yeah. for a former player. That's unbelievable. I mean, like, that's really awesome that you can, that they feel that you are the guy to do that. Their families do. Well, when it, when it comes to these guys' baseball careers, I'm kind of like the with some of these players that I've been close with for nearly half of my life now, I'm 22. I started this when I was 12. For a lot of these guys, I've been the go-to baseball guy on their career. And like, I know them the most other than, you know, them Mm -hmm. on their baseball career, their teammates, their stories. Um, So these relatives call me up and they know that I was, I was there for a long part of their life. Um, Man. And they, you know, they asked me about their career and, and asked me to write something up. That must be, how hard is that? I mean, because now that you mention it, because when you were 12, these guys were in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. I mean, like, so they're, you're probably, you know, this is probably going to be something that you experience. I mean, it might got to be tough. Yeah, it it is. And it's it's kind of hit a little bit harder lately just because, there, there have been, obviously, since I started, there's been players passing away monthly since I first began this in 2007. But a lot of the guys that I've kind of developed bigger and stronger relationships with over the phone and seeing at reunions, some of them are starting to pass away. So when I have that stronger connection and then one of those guys passes away, it, it definitely hits a little bit harder. Um, well, I think the fact that you were able to contact them and kind of connect before, you know, before they uh, passed away probably meant a lot to them. So you can feel very good about that. Um, but anyway, we've been talking to Cam Perrin, who was featured on HBO's Real Sports twice for the work he's done with and for the Negro League's players and the Negro League's rich history. Uh, Cam, thanks so much for really taking the time out to do this. I know that you're just getting off work and whatnot, but we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.